Welcome to Culture Conversations, a podcast that helps disciples make disciples in today's world. I'm Chris Moran, host of Culture Conversations, and today you'll be hearing from David Pickney. David is the U.S. Rural Strategist for the Rural Collective and Church in Hard Places for the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. David is also the Northern New England Area Lead for Acts 29. David also planted and pastors River of Grace Church in Concord, New Hampshire. Dave shares his history and much wisdom in this episode. I trust you'll be encouraged. So I'm here with my friend Dave, and he is many things. He is uh, husband, father, pastor, movement leader for the Rural Collective. You're the man, bro. Well, well, that that sounds like a big job description, but it, I mean, uh, by the grace of God, you know, uh, Sharon stuck with me for 32 years, and our five kids are now adults, and love it. Uh, they're still walking with Jesus, which is probably the best part of life. Is yeah, pastoring, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, glad to be here. Yeah, man. You and I met and I think officially in 2017 in Tennessee for the Acts 29 Global Gathering. Okay. You were, you were rooming with Vince. Remember that? Yes. I Now I remember. Yeah. 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 And, and so you and I talked quite a bit there. And then we got to build also in 2019 at the Global Gathering, some there. Yeah. Uh, we sat together during several sessions and you were a great encouragement to me. And uh, I, I got my Rural Collective shirt on under the Nike shirt, man. It's, Bro, there we go. Look at bam, that. Bam, I think I got that off you at your stand. Yeah, there we go. Yep. Yeah, so I'm representing today, brother. So yeah. I would love, man, man first of all, your, your attitude and disposition and, and joyfulness is kind of like an aura around you. I don't know if anyone's ever said that to you or if you're just such a people person that when you're around people, you light up. But man, I just, I sense like such a positive like vibe from you every time I'm around you, even every time I pass your table, the rural collective table, you have this huge smile. You're like giving people gifts and hugs. And do you live well, a joyful life, brother? I, well, I, I mean, I, so I think it is the, uh, the, the longer you walk with Jesus, the happier you should be. Right. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it was J.I. Packard's last book, 2014. Uh, it was, I think it called, it was called enduring with joy or something like that. Mm-hmm. But Honestly, I'm more joyful now than I was 10 years ago, um, just, just because, um, not, not because the, you know, the, that we're you know, making any major moves other than just following Jesus. And, uh, I, you know, he's, he's, he's as, the longer you walk with him, the more faithful you realize he is. So, uh, I, I, you know, I, God, God blessed me with an optimistic um, sort of mm-hmm. personality. And, uh, yeah, so... I'm glad that God wired me this way. It's, it's, uh, it's a good thing to be happy with life. I mean, it's, I say all that to say, um, you know, I wish there were a ton of things I could change about me and change about right. my life. But uh, the reality is if, if I really believe God made me this way and he likes me and he's assigned me here, I, I could be happy with that. Cause the best deal is I'm, I'm like a day closer to paradise. Yeah, man. Uh, and then I get to do I get to do the father's work, you know. I mean, it's an honor. Uh, it's it sucks at times. I shouldn't say no, that no. word. Uh, but, no, you're um, good, brother. <laughs> Next twenty nine podcast, dude. Yeah, there we go. But yeah, yeah. So um, th- th- I've never heard anybody call say that there's an aura around me. Um, usually, there's an odor around me, because uh, I'm a rural dude and I've got chicken. Uh, but uh, yeah, so um, I, I was I was mentored well in seminary. Um, Actually, when, when I was in seminary, a book came out by an unknown author at that point called Desiring God. His name was oh. And so yeah. I was discipled into that and through that. And uh, one of my seminary professors was 
really um, kept kept pointing me towards, you know, that that if God is sovereign over all things and he's my father and Christ has secured me, then growing in that awareness is every reason to be uh, joyful. Not always easy. Uh, actually, today's Monday and I, I woke up really sour this morning and, mm. and wasn't happy with a lot of things and plowing through the day. But, um, you know, so anyway. So you're a Christian hedonist. I would say so. Yeah. yeah I man. just think I'm a Christian and a Christian has to be a hedonist in the sense that, yeah, Jesus is the wellspring of, what do you say to the woman at the well? You know, I put it within you a, a well that you'll never thirst again. I mean, there's great satisfaction and, and, uh, you know, I've, I've had the joy of traveling the world and seeing all sorts of things and realize the best part about life is walking with Jesus. So mm. just keep walking. Love it, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love that you're a realist too, because Mondays are hard for pastors. And sometimes yeah. that's because, you know, the sermon didn't go as well, or you, yeah. you got in a fight with a deacon or whatever, yeah. but you know, it, it tends to be a thing. Mondays are rough for pastors. I think there's an adrenaline. Um, I think there's a real uh, physiological thing. There's an adrenaline uh, rush on Sunday, and then you have this depletion on Monday. Um, the reality is there's some spiritual battle going on. You're exhausted. There's People do not realize what it takes to pastor and to preach a good sermon. Uh, even if it takes more to preach a bad sermon, I think, because <laughs> then you got to pick yourself up off the floor. But um, yeah, so uh, Mondays is not a good day to take off. I would not recommend that for pastors. I think you should just do a lot of like, like administrative stuff and just, just yeah. But um, so Mondays is not my day off. You brought it off. What's your day of rest? You brought it up. Right now it's Friday. Uh, Friday is a great day to have off. Uh, although our church is right now meeting on Saturday. So it's sort of not okay. great, but because um, we were meeting in a school and the schools obviously aren't available at this point. So we're renting a church on, on Saturdays. Um, but Fridays is to me my favorite day off because it's, the day, you know, if you can get your sermon done and everything set and Monday, Saturday, Thursday night, you can go to bed and everything's done. You've got a great day. And, then, you know, Saturdays is a kind of a, you know, a catch all day and you, you can maybe work half the day or not at all. Maybe get two days off in a row. That's like a miracle for a yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, man. Yep. Great. And Love I'm a strict, brother. I'm a strict Sabbatarian, man. When it comes to like on my day off, I tell, I tell our flock, I'm not praying for you. If Jesus can't handle <laughs> the flock on, on my day off then I'm following the wrong Lord, he wants me to rest from my work. So I putter. I just do little odd jobs. I make my little list and I feel really accomplished on nice. Friday because I go to the dump and I, you know, I do this little project and um, just fill my day with, with things, anything, anything unrelated to being a pastor. Mm, love it, man. So you, yeah. you turn your phone off. Uh, you know, I'm old enough that, you know, I, I was in pastoral work before there was a cell phone. So I can easily ignore the phone. I don't turn it off because you know, we're a small church and I want to be there for emergencies, which there aren't that many, but, or I've got five kids and a wife, and so my phone isn't off. It's just I, I'm pretty disciplined about ignoring it. Like, not most, there aren't very many emergencies that need me. Plus, if you have a multiple, if you have multiple elders, then you can assign somebody to be on duty on, on your day off. Although, yeah. yeah, that's not always easy because, but anyway. Yeah. yeah, man. Well, brother, I would love to hear your story. I think every every person's story is so interesting and unique in that God calls people from so many different walks of life and their journey to faith is so unique. I love to capture stories. So I'd love to hear like, what was your environment like growing up? Like, what was your household like? Was it Christian, non-Christian? Um, and then what did that look like leading you into the place where you first came to know Christ and yeah. received? Uh, Chris, 
Great question. I'm glad you're leading with this because uh, um, I think that anybody is saved by Jesus is an astonishing story. Mm. And uh, I remember hearing the lies that like, you know, like, well, if you come to Christ in a Christian home, in a Christian church, that's not an exciting testimony. I just think that's BS. Um, I, so I, my dad, we moved to New Hampshire when I was two. My okay. dad took his first church. He was a pastor in a rural church here in New Hampshire. He just graduated from uh, Houghton College. He was 44 at the time. Um, I was born late in his life. Um, and uh, so I grew up in this just tranquilic little country church in New Hampshire. Nice. And I can still remember the day that the weight of my sin weighed heavy on me. And mm -hmm. all I knew to do was go to dad and ask him to help to get Jesus inside to take away my sin. I was about four years old. I can still wow. remember it. I remember climbing the stairs of the parsonage. This is in Epsom, New Hampshire. And uh, finding dad in the rocking chair. I still have the rocking chair. My dad passed away in 2011 at the age mm -hmm. of 90. Um, and I remember sitting in his lap and getting Jesus inside and then going to play with my, I don't know, GI Joe or something. Right. Um, but that I was four and it was, it was, it was pivotal. Um, and I am so grateful that, and I don't know why Jesus comes to some people young. I, I, I it's, I think it's an incredible gift of grace that Jesus saves children. Um, because even with that, you know, all the trouble you can get into, I think sure. man, without Christ, through those developing years into my adolescence and teen, I, I don't know what I'd be like, but I'm so grateful he came to me young and it was genuine. I was baptized when I was eight and nice. I remember that day. Um, and then about the age of between 12 and 14, as you get into that place of, you know, the kind of growing into like teenage years, you, you, that's when I, I made, made a serious choice to really follow Jesus. And, mm -hmm. Um, the, the craziest thing, my parents were going to this, um, it was, it, this was, well, let's say I think I was 14. So that would be, yeah, 1977. They're going to this seminar called change the world school of prayer. And somehow I asked if I could go mm. the craziest thing. So I go to this thing and they have, they, you know, it's a, it's a day and a half long seminar and they really challenge you to, to spend an hour a day in prayer and then praying for the missionaries of the world. And we, at that time were living at, at an old parsonage and, had lots of rooms and had an empty closet halfway down the hallway. And I asked my parents if I could have that for my, my prayer space. And this is crazy. After, after school, I'd come home and spend an hour in there and, and you kind of like spend five minutes. For, so for someone like me who has attention deficit problems, mm -hmm. um, it, it would just like, and, and that was very formative. Now I was still wrestling with all the things that teenagers were wrestling with filled with lust and temptation sure. and, and, uh, you know, um, man, uh, now today, I would because I grew up in Lillywhite, New Hampshire, and I I didn't know the black community. I would have been I would have been a young racist, really, because mm. uh, you know I told I told jokes that that were you know ethnic slurs and. Sure. Um, but boy, Jesus continued to pursue me and change me, and it's just this progressive sanctification. So, I am just that's that's my story of God coming to me early. I didn't find Him; He found me. Uh, and again, it was the um, you know the the, the amazing grace of Christ colliding with, with um, my, my overwhelming sense of being a sinner. Mm. And that to me is the story of grace. And the more you understand it, the more you're alive in it. So um, yeah, that was, 
that's that's my story. I'm sticking with it. Is yeah, man. So parsonage for those who don't know, what is a parsonage? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> where it's where the parson lives. Uh, it's it's a church owned house that houses the pastor, and and in so many settings throughout um, American history, uh, the parson, the pastor, would only stay for two or three years. So they didn't buy a house; they just lived in the church owned house. So yeah, uh, growing up, all, actually, all the way through my first. Midway through my first pastorate, I lived. That's all I knew is living in church-owned houses, and I have a bitterness towards them. Oh, is that right? Was but it on the property of the church building? Yeah. Uh, well, typically they were close by, and the ones we lived in, uh, in were almost all within. So it was three I can remember within um, sight of the church building, not necessarily right next to it, but um, often they weren't well cared for, mm. and of course you weren't building up any equity. Right. And there was no incentive for the church or the pastor's family to do really any upgrades. No doubt. So, um, yeah, anyway. And then my kids actually got lead poisoning from. Oh, uh, no. From, yeah, what, man. What? So um, that, that, that was the end of that. We quickly got rid of that and got into our own, began our own process of getting to our own house. Um, I'm not bitter anymore, but I, it, it's, uh, it, 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 uh, it was, yeah, I'm glad we're out of it. It's funny. Uh, my, yeah. my first church growing up, the parsonage was right on the parking lot. Like it was right there, man. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, the people would come to the pastor's house all the time, off hours, on mm-hmm. hours, weekends. Yeah. Um, and, and he was so gracious, man. This, this, this gentleman, uh, he would receive us, he'd have us in the house. And, but, it, but in one sense, he was never separate from the ministry. Ever. It, that's a tough role. It really yeah. is a tough role. Yeah. And uh, my, you know, my father was a just second career. He didn't go. He didn't go. He went to felt called the ministry when he was like forty. He went to college, and so he didn't start pastoring. He was forty four, and he just delighted. It. He was a World War II um, veteran, and so you know, guys like that just for them. You know, every and he had a you know had a one on one gift of evangelism. So mm-hmm. he he just enjoyed ministry. So my dad was an incredible role model for us. Nice. Far from perfect, but. Uh, um, just a great role model. And, uh, yeah. Love it. Yeah. Quick question about one thing you said, uh, the prayer closet thing. Do you, <laughs> have you kept that practice? Well, prayer is, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, prayer is basically being in the presence of Jesus. And, um, over the course of my life, there have probably been five or six or more different seasons of prayer experiences or practices, um, where today it's not a closet, but certainly, you know, first thing in the morning, getting coffee and, and sitting with Jesus for, oh my goodness, if it's not a good hour, uh, we're, we're, we're messed up. But, I, you know, it's just Jesus time, just the yeah. word, uh, prayer, conversation. Um, I'm not so much um, uh, tied to lists anymore, although I do have some that I keep. Uh, actually, I use them on my there's a, there's a good prayer app called, um, I, I never remember the name of it because I just pushed the button, you know. Mm-hmm. Remember, I started pastoring when uh, we, I had a typewriter. Oh, first, man. First technological advancement we had is I had a beeper. Nice. So that, you had a pager. I had a pager, brother. That's what it is, a pager, yeah. So it's called Prayer Mate. It's a really good app, Prayer Mate, um, right. and I find it to be a very good way. So I, I, that's a, I, I'm not getting any kickback from them. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so I I would say that um, 
prayer is walking with God. And I hope to be someone who, uh, would, would be like Enoch, someone who mm. walked with God. Love it. And, uh, so I would, I would say that my, 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 uh, growth in walking with, with Jesus, it still has its struggles, right? Like we get, we get, uh, we get distracted. Uh, you know, uh, the, the downside, one reason I don't like to use the prayer app is because I'm so consumed by everything else on here. Right. So, right. Uh, I actually intentionally go down, make coffee, sit with my Bible in my, my journal and, and talk with Jesus without my phone nearby. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. No, I mean, the prayer closet. Uh, but I have sp- uh, places that I like to go to prayer. Um, one I like to go to, this is going to sound pretty funny, but I, there's a uh, Catholic convent nearby that has this beautiful chapel, and nobody's looking for a Protestant pastor right. there in the, Pro- in the Catholic hide, chapel. Man. It's free, open, and beautiful, and there's scripture all over the walls. And and uh, so that that's... I, that. that that habit, uh, of course, I don't open during COVID, so that's sort of. Uh, uh, but that's that's you know having places of prayer is a good thing. Um, yeah. So, no, I don't have the prayer closet anymore. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that, man. I appreciate yeah. it. And I, I I also commend the physical Bible if you can. You know, yeah. put the phone away, put the tech away for a little bit, open up your yeah. real Bible, and and spend some time yeah. with the Lord. There's, there's some beauty there to that. Yeah. Some undistracted time. Yep, undistracted is right. Yeah, yeah. When, it, Piper in when I don't desire God, he says one of the essential things is having a place. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to spend time with God regularly, you yep. need to have a place, a designed, designated place, and a plan, like a plan of what you're going to do. Yep. And I found that helpful. Um, I'm a bit, you know, attention deficit too. So if I don't structure something, it's not going to get done. So, so I brother. Think- I, as one little side, other side note, I think, I think pastors in general should, this is, uh, the, I think they should know the scent of the carpet of their office. In other words, getting their nose on the floor in front of God mm. in desperation. I just think now and then we just need to be prostate, be, prostate, prostrate, prostrate, yeah. <laughs> prostrate before God, um, on our face. And I, I just think, uh, getting your body in different positions for prayer is helpful and flat on your face is a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly a posture of humility and neediness and yeah, I love it, man. Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So I'd love to hear brother, you, you grew up in a Christian home. Your dad was a pastor. He, you know, was his sermon a sermon that led you to Christ or was it, just all of a sudden, out of nowhere. I'm just gonna, I would call it the environment of the Christian community and the gospel permeated that community. So a small little country church, little Baptist church. And I can't point to one particular person, message or anything other than I knew Jesus was the, was the solution to my sense of guilt and, yeah. and sin. I don't know. I, I just think it's the environment of grace and gospel that did it. So, yeah. Love it. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And then, so you, you grow a bit, you're praying, you have this real relationship with God. When did you sense a call to become a pastor? I mean, that's a pretty serious commitment. Yeah. So I went off to college and honestly, I loved Jesus and hated the church. Now, part of that was, so part of the, the Congregational Baptist culture was these people really loved Jesus, but man, when they had a business meeting, it was like all hell broke loose. Yeah. And I, I, there was a disconnect for me about some of the church culture and what the Bible taught about Christianity. So I, I literally went off to, to college um, 
I actually went to Word of Life Bible Institute in Spoon Lake, New York. Okay. And I thought I would pursue Jesus without the church because I thought he must have a plan B. Um, and it wasn't until my second year in school, I was an RA and I had I was shepherding 14 guys in our dorm. And in that setting, they kept saying, oh, David, you make a good pastor, you make a good pastor. Because I was shepherding these guys. And I kind of like just said, well, Jesus, if that's where you're calling me, I'll pursue that until you stop me. And so he hasn't stopped me yet. Look at that. Um, yeah, that's that was my calling. Um, and so I kind of repented of my negative attitude towards church. And and then, and you know, it, as a pastor, you have a lot of influence. And so... Um, ironically, and this was, I came home, I, I, I transferred to Liberty University, um, was finished in the fall of uh, December of 1986, came home to New Hampshire here. My dad was still pastoring a little country church, and I got a job and was lucky to go to seminary, and he was paying me under the table to preach for him for six months. Wow. And he was turning 65, and he, and he basically in July announces the congregation, I think it's time I retire. And of course, the congregation, rather than doing the whole pulpit search thing, they just said, David, would you be our pastor? Wow. I just registered to uh, enter into um, uh, Seminary of the East, which is now was, well, it was in Worcester, Massachusetts. So it was driving distance from uh, New Hampshire. And um, so I became a pastor. I was 20, I just, just shy of being 24 years old. I just engaged to Sharon. She had one more year at Liberty. And so I started pastoring the church my dad retired from and it about only about 50 people. And so I figured, well, they figured, I think, what, what damage can he do? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, that was it. And so part of that was the affirmation process of the church there confirming. So I think by 91, they, I I was officially ordained. Um, So, yeah. And uh, I've always said, if, if the elders in the church said, Dave, you should do something else other than being a pastor, um, I probably would happily go that route. Just, just not, no, I enjoy being a pastor, but it is, it is, it is darn hard work. Yeah. It is, it is a burden. People just don't realize the spiritual battle, the, 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 uh, betrayal and, mm-hmm. uh, disappointments and, um, you know, then there's the, all the inner struggle. So, you know, I, I could call, I could talk a long time about all of that, but you know, God's grace is sufficient. In fact, the verse that is, kept me sane since I was probably 14 is that second Corinthians 12, nine and 10. Mm-hmm. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made weak, perfect in weakness. Yeah. And man, that's been, that's been such a gift to keep going back to that going. Yeah. I'm a jar of clay. His grace is sufficient. And uh, we just keep taking another step forward, learning how to rest well. So uh, my Sabbath becomes sanity day, you know, like, mm-hmm. like I can step away from this. And, uh, and then we, my wife and I regularly will take three weeks consecutively in the summer and run away Nice. You know, just to get away. And, man, that's that's really important. Yeah, brother, I worked for 20, I don't know, five, six years in, in non-pastoral ministry. Um, and, and some of it was laboring, you know, like digging holes and mm-hmm. uh, carrying heavy things, using your body to do labor. And I would work 10 plus hour days sometimes. And I would come home tired sometimes. But man, when I started doing ministry work, I was exhausted, like to me, unexplainably exhausted, like emotionally and physically and spiritually. I was just tired. 
And it was very confusing to me because you're not like lifting anything and you're not digging anything and you're not like putting blocks on and, you know, yeah, yeah. and it, it is very taxing. And for the outsider looking in, I don't think it's easy to explain that. No, no. It is the most meaningful work in the world. There's nothing like it. Probably only second to being a mother, I think. Mm, um, I think, I think pastoring is um, the most meaningful job in the world. Um, and so there's that great honor and the great promise that there's, you know, I, 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 I think we have to bank on um, the, the things promised in the eternity for, for doing a job well here. And so, um, yeah, you get beyond the sort of, I, I could, I could break my three, uh, decades of ministry into, I wrestled with traditionalism first, and then I rec- wrestled with pragmatism, and then I wrestled mm. with egotism. Mm. Uh, and once, you know, and now I hope to think I'm a realist, um, about what, what I'm called to. And, uh, um, I think that also increases, increases joy, right? I mean, I'm, I'm still being sanctified and uh, there's still stuff to work through, but yeah. Yeah, it is. It is hard work. It is rewarding work. I, I just did a membership class last night on Zoom. Love it. Yeah. Eight people on there and two of them have come to Christ in the last um, nine months. And That's to awesome. hear the stories of grace, uh, one comes out of a very affluent, educated background. The other comes out of uh, just a, 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 a drug addicted world. Um, and both just glow with Christ. So, you know, to, to, to see the gospel take root in people's lives and uh, that, 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 you know, you, there's nothing like that. That's uh, baptizing a new believer for me is probably the, one of the best experiences in the world. It's energizing, right? Oh my goodness. I mean, in a, in such a deep and profound way. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it's great, man. Yeah. Um, so you, Acts 29 is the network that we both belong to. Yes. Um, you were there in the very beginning, right? Yeah. We were like church number 24. Okay. Um, that's we still joined in, Yeah. We joined around 2004, sometime okay. in that, that window. Yeah. And, but it became a thing in 2002, right? Uh, early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason I was connected to it. So I was, um, I did 10 years of pastoral work in the first church I pastors and, and by the God's grace, the last three years were a rocket ride. The church grew to packing out like 250 people wow. in this little rural church. Same it's one your dad pastored. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, I mean, the first four years I was in seminary is the longest honeymoon a pastor should have. My, we might got married, we had babies. So we grew to probably a hundred people, but no conversions to speak yeah. of. And then after I graduated, Don and me, we've got to for, we got to lead this church to think about being here for the people not in it. Mm. And this was pivotal, and this is what it takes, I think, to you know, a lot of um, talk about um, oh, what do they call it? turnaround churches or yeah. ingrown, um, outgrown? Yeah. So yeah, when you ha- take an ingrown church or something that even culturally has just become ingrown. And you say, we've got to exist for the people not in it. That was those, those were three painful years, but then that paid off. I said painful because like five of the key families left over that mm-hmm. time, good friends, you know, um, I didn't do everything right by any means, but, um, but then it's just a church just such filling up with all sorts of brokenness. It was beautiful. So then I got recruited on staff at a church down in York, Pennsylvania for five years. It was a mega church. And uh, I was number two, did two fifths of the preaching. Um, it was really good. Uh, but there was also a side of it that it was like, you know, um, it, 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 it was lacking in certain things. 
So my goal there was I was going to move south. I had a really good resume, and I was going to go south, get a church. I wanted my own swimming pool. That was my high and lofty, holy goal. And uh, Jesus hit me over the side of the head with like a two-by-four in the fall of 2001 to come back and plant in 2002. Hmm. I'm, a, I'm a ordained with the Conservative Baptist Association. Uh, I don't hmm. know. They're a small northern denomination that people primarily know through Denver Seminary and Western Seminary. Okay. But, um, they a lot of good guys in it, but their they had their church playing strategy was lacking when it came to well, it wasn't theologically driven, wasn't missionally engaging in the way that I thought. And while I'd been on staff of the mega church, I I was part of uh, leadership networks, young leaders network, and that's where I ran into Mark Driscoll and some yeah. of the founding guys of of Acts twenty nine. And so when we planted, I heard about what they were doing, and while I was connected with the conservative Baptist. I, I, you know, I pursued them and at that point. I mean, goodness, assessment was you raise your right hand and say that you're, you know, you believe in the doctrines of grace, you're reformed and you're complementarian and basically it take you in. Nice. Um, yeah, the bar was really low. I mean, you know, and I'm proof of it, but um, that was, and, and so I've been part of that network from the get go and just hung around, kept going to this stuff, gave myself to doing a lot of assessments because I thought that was a way I could serve the network, you know, have ridden the waves of X29 1.0, 2.0, we're now 3.0. Much um, controversy in between. Yeah, much controversy and, you know, just staying faithful because the the, the best part about X29 and even, even beyond just being a network of churches playing churches is the fraternity, the brotherhood that has kept me sane theologically, that's kept me missionally driven, um, been my friends in the darkest hours, um, been mm. counselors, and, uh, so that, yeah, so, uh, that's, I, you know, it's, it's, it's the tribe I feel most at home in and, um, and I think we're doing noble work. We're not the only, uh, you know, thing on the block, but man, I'm glad by God's grace, uh, I found it, it found me and I'm still a part of it. Yeah, brother. Yeah. yeah. So for me, the Acts 29 network was my, what, what Megan and I, my wife, made our call from God, kind of the confirmation. So we decided, to, plenty of people said, you should pastor a church, you should pastor yeah. a church, you know, yeah. kind of like your yeah. dorm yeah. experience there. Uh, and I was like, no, no, I'm not going to be a pastor. And when I, I caught a vision for what pastoral ministry could look like from Mark Driscoll, really, and Reformations yep. Rev, and like the people they were... Um, reaching and ministering to and i was like wow all right so you could do church like this i think i could do that yep i could could play in this lane so we did assessment and it was not as rigorous as it is now but man i've I've wrote a lot uh, on that online assessment and had conversations with tyler powell and then did a two or three hour interview it was certainly not a two-day thing as it is now yeah and when i was done my wife and i both said if they give us the green light we're going to take that as a call from god to to do ministry. Yeah. I was on a team of elders at a church and uh, they were like, you should start right away. And we were like, okay. <laughs> so we gathered a core team right away and we started while I was already on a five person elder team at another church. Uh, I was unpaid volunteering, but uh, an elder nonetheless. Yeah, man. And, and so that assessment brother was so key for us. And, uh, and the coaching since has been so helpful. Um, unbelievable. And yeah. yeah, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm with the brothers at these bigger events, which I wish there was more, you know, we're in, we're in a weird COVID season, but yeah. so you were doing assessments 
all the time. What did that look like? And for those who don't know, what is an Acts 29 assessment? Why is it helpful? Because we have, I might not be correct on the numbers, but it's in the 90s, high 90s success rate. After five years, the church still exists, right? Yeah, that might have dropped some, but it's still high. And, um, and, and, and keeping the bar high on assessment, I think, is important because a lot of guys who are called a pastor, and most guys are called a pastor not to plant. Planting takes a unique um, person and calling. And, and, um, and boy, you just don't want guys burning out their families. They're, I mean, I've got too many uh, just sad stories of guys even, even who've passed assessments and, you know, are, are dead mm. uh, or atheists. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, so uh, the assessment is a, um, a rigorous, you know, everything from theology to marriage, to character, to competency when it comes to planting, because you have to have a measure of, of entrepreneurial giftedness. Now, not all of us are super entrepreneurial. I wouldn't say I am but just enough to get by or courageous stupidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so there's all sorts of, of benefits to that. And, and so now after you, you know, um, you, you, you do the whole online thing and, and uh, depending on what region you are in, the assessment coordinator does the, the, uh, the interviews with your references, then your assessment team gets this. The last one I got was like a 120 page report. Oh. My goodness. Yeah. So then there are three pastors and at least one wife sitting in for two days or day and a half with the couple um, and preaching happens live. And so you get, you, you know, it, it, there's just the, the assessment process has so improved. And basically a guy will walk away and get a report that sit, gives them basically one of four outcomes. One is plant right now. You, you know, you don't need anything else. You're, we'll make you a member immediately or as soon as you gather the core um, or not core, but critical mass. I, it used to be 40. I don't know if that's still a standard. It was 40 when I was assessed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other is number two, you are approved as a planter will make you move you from being an applicant to a candidate. And, but you need to do these, meet these conditions in the next six months or so. So number three would be you have potential, but there are some significant conditions that will take you some time more than a year likely so if you want to pursue that, come back to us and be reassessed, not at the same level, but, uh, and then the last one is God loves you as a plan for your life, but we do not think you should be a planter right. at this time in your life. At that's all. helpful, right? To hear that. Even though yeah. Hard. Some guys are really grateful to hear that. They're, you know, it's, the, it's freeing because they're feeling guilted. They're feeling like they should. And other guys are ticked and they'll plant anyway, or, mm. you know, I mean, I've seen the whole gamut. Like I said, I've done, I don't know how many hundreds of, I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's 200 or whatever. I don't, I, I just lost count, but I've been assessing since I would say 2008 or nine or 10, I don't know, somewhere in there. Wow. Um, and I think it's a way to contribute to the network as far as just being in a room with other guys and helping um, a couple determine God's call. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful process. And uh, I, I, I'm, 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 it's interesting that, you know, when you talk about the assessment and coaching, so when I was, when I joined the network, none of that, I mean, the assessment was an interview with one guy and the guy that I met with said, I don't think you really fit the network hmm. because I wasn't young and hipster and I wasn't planning in a real urban place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, and yet then I was still accepted, which I think by God's grace was a, a gift to the, 
actually not that I'm a gifted actually, no, but the, the network needs to be broader than just young hipster guys who are, you know, you know, just, you know, flannel, stick rim glasses, coffee. Yeah. yeah. Addicts. <laughs> it's okay. If you're just not cool. I mean, Jesus yeah, right. uses, uh, you know, things people <laughs> like Pinkney on, on the standard of diversity here. Like, love it, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah brother. What, one of the things you said on a former podcast I thought was intriguing was early on Acts 29 was a very city centered church planting mm-hmm. movement. Yeah. Uh, I think along the lines of city to city with, with Keller yeah, and his people. Sure. Um, and you said that you, <laughs> I, I really, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say it was an outward bold lie. I just looked at Concord and, and I wanted to be in the network and Concord is the capital of New Hampshire. So therefore it's the urban center of New Hampshire. Now actually Manchester, New Hampshire is the largest city of 115,000, but Concord was a, you know, bursting at 40,000, you know? And um, so back then I could make the argument because Acts 29 was all they were concerned about is, you know, really urban hipster and suburban planting. And, uh, so yeah, I just made the argument that I belong because of that. Uh, now I'm leading the rural collective because you know Concord is the capital of a rural state. Right. Concord has a a chicken ordinance. Like how many chickens you can have in your house? How many do you your, have? Well, I don't even. So this is the other thing. I don't even live in Concord. I, I live in a uh, one of the surrounding little towns of. Chi, I live in Chichester. I have six chickens. I'm on five acres. I can have as many nice. chickens as I want. But in Concord, you can only have five, and you can have no roosters. Nice. Uh, because of the noise, right? A noise artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was that was back in the day. And uh, again, for me, uh, Acts 29 has been this fraternity, this brotherhood, and it's just kept, I've said this, I've already said this, it keeps, kept me sane. But there has been this sense where those of us who God has called to plant in obscure, forgotten, isolated, small places didn't have a, didn't have a, didn't have recognition. Not that we're looking for recognition, but it, it wasn't valued. Yeah, and uh, I thank God for um, Steve Timmis that part of his, you know, part of his leadership time um, was to to help bring about uh, a focus in Acts twenty nine for the urban poor and uh, rural planting. Yeah, and, and the Islamic uh, collective as well. Yeah, that's. I don't think that's going to get legs. Not because it's not important, but because anything that has to do with Islamic can't be talked about publicly and can't mm-hmm. have a. A, um, a structural identity. There are Acts twenty nine guys doing Islamic planting, and there. But um, I, yeah. So I, I say that to say that was part of the goal. But to even identify that guy would basically put a target on his Agreed. family. Yeah. Uh, especially since we're a kind of a loud brash. Well, we're not so loud and not quite as brash, but you know that. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah. So that happened. That talk started in that, I think, around the fall of 2016, all of 2017. And by 2018, um, seven of us from different networks, X29 uh, regional networks, were gathered together in, um, in a room in Sheffield, England, to talk about what would it look like to have um, to help serve our global family by promoting rural planting. And so that's where the Rural Collective was birthed. I was the old guy in the room. I had... My, my stage of life, my kids were older, so I didn't have little kids in school. I could travel. Um, and, uh, you know, I, yeah, so that was, uh, that was, that was, it started, that meeting happened exactly two years ago this week. Wow, look at that. Uh, it yeah. seems like you guys have come so far in two years. 
That's great to hear. It's hard to assess wow. internally because I'm I'm a quarter time. I mean, I'm a quarter time lead pastor and three quarter time. Um, my original uh, title was co-director of uh, the Rural Collective. I'm now called the strategist for the nice. Rural Collective. Um, Is Robert still on your team? Well, he's on our leadership team, but he also has a new title because he's working more with the African, um, East Africa emerging regions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Africa is 1.6 billion people and, you know, it, it needs, uh, and there are different regions uh, for us in the States, like Southern Africa, not South Africa, but Southern Africa is actually a region of, I think, 10 countries. Um, just like New England is a region of six states. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, then there's East Africa, West Africa, Nor- uh, North Africa, Central Africa. I think that might be the regions. But the 56 countries of Africa have so many different dynamics. Like yeah. Ke- Kenya alone has 44 tribes. Oh, man. And, and they're distinct. They're very distinct. So uh, Robert um, has been empowered now to work with the emerging regions, um, which is led by Scott. Uh, yeah, Scott out of Dubai. Nice. Um, why am I forgetting? I'm blanking on Scott's last name. Anyway, uh, his uh, Robert's job is to work. The emerging regions is the is the bucket to catch all the areas of the world that don't have enough uh, yeah, emerging critical capacity, right? To to make its own region. So the uh, Robert's been a sort of assigned to the eastern part of Africa, even though Malawi technically fits in southern Africa. Yeah. Uh, he's he's a brilliant brother, and so he's still on the leadership team for the rural collective the seven of us that were in that room are still we call ourselves the seven dwarves nice. we are we're all we stuck together that was the first time we all met each other um and we have stuck together and that team uh, is just so devoted to seeing to va- to seeing our network value rural planting it's not more important than urban or suburban but yeah. it's not it's not less important that's right so uh, Robert's you still can part of the way because there's less people and you oh, know, yeah. have more yeah. acres than people. Oh yeah. And you know, the city to city emphasis has been good, but the, the pushback has, has finally come to light that, wait a minute, you know, even though they love to quote, you know, point to Paul and say how he went to big cities. Um, Jesus skipped the big cities. He didn't That's go right. to Rome. He didn't go to Alexandria, Egypt. He went to Podunk Galilee. Yep. Um, and, and so uh, you know, if you take that verse in Habakkuk, if, uh, that the, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, yeah. that means every village and, and hamlet will be filled with the gospel of Jesus. And yeah. so, again, not less important, not more important, but it is significant. So, yeah, it's good, yeah, man. Yeah, I can get we, I get ramped up on that. You should. You're the you're the man. Uh, <laughs> so we we do work in Uganda, and yeah. we are a part of that emerging regions you know we support a church there in uh in gulu northern uganda okay and i was there in 2018 with tony and robert and uh, a couple other brothers and doing a training conference in kampala and then from there we went up north five hours and and man so there there is an overlap between hard place and rural like you could be in a very hard place but it not be like American hood, uh, which is where our church is. We're in, we're in one of the hoods in Pittsburgh. Um, but it's a hard place and it's rural because there's farm animals yeah. everywhere and there's, you know, one little store. And so, so that I think is helpful for some people to understand is 
just because it's a hard place doesn't necessarily mean it's it's like inner city ish. Yeah, and in this latest reiteration of Acts twenty nine, the, the the reorg that's gone on since um, let's say just March, uh, under under the cover of COVID, which has been a benefit actually. And and my my shout out to Brian Howard, the new executive director, is yeah, doing a, a stand up job. But uh, the Rural Collective now officially fits under the broad banner of churches and hard places. So churches and hard places now is all about both uh, the urban poor, planting among the urban poor in the hood and planting in rural places. Oh, nice. So our job now is to serve the, the global networks by saying, where, where can we help you um, train, recruit, promote, support guys who are called to rural places or, or the, among the urban poor. So I, I, that, the, this will be, I guess, for lack of a better term, a rebranding of how you look at churches and hard places. Churches and hard places, I now fit under that umbrella, gotcha. but the rural collective is, is one part of that. Um, I'll be doing a more traveling with Mez McConnell and, and MSD, uh, Matthew yeah. Stanley-Davidson, because there is so much. You know, we were in Brazil together in November, and man, half the guys in the room were from, the, the, the Amazon are from rural places. Uh, Brazil is one of these magnificent countries of 56 million people. I think it's 56 million. I could be wrong. But the, the, they, have, they have these multiple cities of millions of people and, and poverty. And, but, but they're like, you know, you drive 15 minutes and you're in rural land. And yeah. so um, there's, there's so much overlap. Absolutely. Yeah. And the things you face, you know, everything from poverty to addiction. One of the guys we baptized last year, a member of our church, um, he was, the, he was the, the drug dealer for a town in New Hampshire of 4,000 people. And he lived a drug dealer's life, but people don't think that they don't think that somehow, um, you know, that they think of drug dealers and they think of, um, uh, you know, uh, the Bronx or something. Absolutely. Yep. Have you, have you encountered JD Vance's hillbilly elegy? Oh man. Love that book. Yeah. Do, Love do you that think it's book. true? Like the assessment of kind of like the Appalachia. I know that's only one part of a rural nature, but. Yeah, no, um, I do. Yeah. He's spot on. It's spot on. Yeah. I yeah, found it helpful to understand that there is, you know, cause we, we deal more with the urban poor here uh, where our context is located, but it, it's helpful to see that like a lot of the same issues are with the, the white rural poor it's it's there's a lot of similarities yep the 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 abuse the breakdown of family um lack of resources um a sense of hopelessness yeah um struggle for jobs yeah all that's the same same yeah i'm curious to hear your opinion on this i i live you know three or so miles from this church building here we're in wilkinsburg and i live in a it's a suburb it's it's a diverse suburb um i have to go out east so towards like philly um would be east for me and into the country it seems like in america or maybe this is just pa i don't know i see more and more conservative you know trump signs and and typically when i go more into the city i see biden and and this kind of left support um do you have a context for why that is being that you're in like the the rural you know network yeah let me um boy i if i i i would like to point people to i won't i won't be able to find it this quickly but um keller put out like five five characteristics of the church 
and and the first one is like the care for the poor and and something to do with justice uh forget the third one the fourth one has to do with the care for life and and the view of of the ethic of sex sex so the first two sound very liberal and the last two sound very conservative and he makes this argument he says the, the biblical christian will not find a home in in either either political right party because if you're if you're true to the bible um and 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 that, that fits so um it's you know as far as why I, i'm just not a sociologist i have my oldest son got a degree well i was gonna say a degree in sociology but he he could he could talk at length about some of the why the city tends to be more blue and the country seems to be more red when it comes yeah. to political views i i, I i'm um i i just i i don't know i don't know at all just curious because um, yeah. i've noticed it i you know you just look at the the support signs and and it's obvious um i i've heard at least for the urban that uh, the closer you get to university, you know, the more you're going to find kind of a left leaning um, majority. Uh, and that has to do with the professors and, you know, what ideas are being taught there and whatnot. Yeah. Um, just curious if you had any. Well, I had, you, now that you brought up the university thing, I think I heard uh, someone say this. And I think it's true. Um, the American culture has spent up the principle of its Christian roots. And mm-hmm. now it's it's. No, it's spent up the interest and now it's digging into the principle in the sense that so much of America is not following Jesus. And even American evangelicalism is so far from, you know, I think uh, a robust biblical um, Christianity um, because it's really about your comfort and what's in it for you and your own, you know, your own vote. I mean, it's like, it's just, it's crazy. Uh, And so I think that you bring up a good point that since universities, which, you know, you take Harvard and, Dartmouth and they, they were all founded as Christian institutions for the propagation of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they're, they've got a whole different gospel. Right. Yeah. And so I think not that, not that liberalism is unbiblical. I mean, is, is rooted. Uh, how do I need, I need to be careful. I'm not, again, I'm not smart enough to be talking about this. So I'm going to get myself in trouble. But um, the, I think for me in a simple fashion, like when we say our pledge of allegiance, we say Liberty and justice for all. Mm-hmm. The red staters are about liberty, freedom, like give me my guns. Sure. And, and the blue staters are about justice. Well, they both matter, mm-hmm. but without roots in a, um, a, a, a absolute truth, which is mm-hmm. Jesus, then it becomes rooted in man's intellect or um, the social drift of the day. And so I think that might add to it. I think rural people are, I don't think they're any more religious. I just think they are, they're more uh, they're still persuaded by the um, Christianization of their culture. I understand. So we, we could say, if I could summarize what you said there, it seems like you're saying in the more urban areas, uh, and not even the urban poor, they're in a sense culturally maybe a bit ahead into secularization. Is that possible? Where the rural I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I think not, it's a, they're just not yeah. there yet? I think you're absolutely right. And, okay. and the hope is not in an election. Uh, the hope right. is in the gospel changing people. That's right. Uh, and that change is not going to make them more Republican or Democrat. It's going to make them better citizens of, 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 of the kingdom of heaven and the truth of both justice uh, and, and uh, you know, sex, sexual ethic. 
mm-hmm. and and um, caring for the poor. I mean, historically, that's you know, it's it's a when I have my dark moments, I go, okay, is Christianity true? I look at creation, I go, okay, absolutely. Yeah, me too. And then I start thinking about, okay, what has Christ done and his presence done on the earth? Mm. And you think about public health and public education, which are all rooted in, in, in you know, a gospel-driven um, Christian movement. Mm. And even Western civilization, people love, you know, Europe and traveling there. But so much of that was, you know, all these barbaric people have been evangelized and, and they, brought, they brought to bear... Um, good civilized laws and, and biblical practices of just weights and balance balances. And so you suddenly had a organized culture, which created social lift. It had nothing to do with a white Anglo-Saxon. It had to do with the gospel transforming uh, by God's divine decree, mm. uh, a certain people. And so, uh, I mean, I, I'm, again, I'm, w- I'm talking way beyond my education and my reading and my intellect, but you know, from a, a layman's small church pastor. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people, I study these things as a pastor, not as like a PhD, because I mean, we only have so much time, right. And and we have to preach every week and we have to counsel people and we don't have time to get yeah. a sociologist yeah. degree and a psychologist degree and a right, right, right. science degree. But I think it's important because you're, you're at least I think from the outsider looking in, when the average person hears rural, they immediately think conservative Republicans and they're all kind of this tribe. And so maybe the temptation, at least maybe for Americans, uh, is to say, okay, rural collective, maybe that's a bunch of Republicans and they're pushing that. So, goal. yeah, that's, you're, that's crazy. You're right? that. That's just crazy. No, in fact, when we're global, so we're beyond the United States. But like one of the greatest challenges I have, to do, I have just pastoring rural people you know, in a very lily white state that has very little ethnic ethnic minority. I mean, we're ninety seven percent Caucasian. Is to is to disciple my people and being sympathetic to the the plight of the minority and the immigrant, mm. um, and 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 those who come from a um, a, a black background in the United States. Uh, so so, I'm I'm trying to disciple people away from just this sort of um, you know patriotic. And again, I love our country, but it's not our home. It's temporary. Yeah, we are uh, citizens of the kingdom. Yeah, we're citizens of the kingdom. So, yeah. So if you're in a blue state, you have to, you have to disciple people away from, like, the government is your savior. Like, mm-hmm. that's, blue, yeah. you know, blue staters are, you know, they really worship the government. They mm-hmm. think that the government is the answer to all things. And science, like, science is, is like, going to cure everything. Like, it's going to save them. Yeah. And so every every culture, whether it be re, you know a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat, has its false gods and false saviors, and uh, we deal with fighting against the uh, the sense that American patriotism and uh, I mean my our, our rural brothers around the around the globe are they they just lose their mind when they realize how many guns my kids have, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Like, you know, this is, you know, it, like New Hampshire's, I call my house Fort Pinckney. I own one gun. It was given to me by my brother-in-law. It's a single barrel shotgun. Uh, nice action. <laughs> yeah, but my boys who I, I didn't bring up, but they've just become like, they're all men now. Um, yeah. But they, they just become these gun-toting guys. And, you know, I, I'm just like flabbergasted by that. Yeah. Like, And so you talk to guys in Australia or England where, 
you know, guns are illegal and right. they, they think we're a bunch of nuts, but yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Discipling a culture, you know, you're trying to take people and, and helping them identify the cultural idols of their, of their, their, their present locale. Yeah. I just interviewed Ricky Love. Do you know Ricky? He's in rural West Virginia. Oh, yeah. Not as rural as it could be. There's some place sure. in West Virginia where it's very rural. Anyway, he said that he, he would take his shotgun out when he was six years old in his holler and just go hunting by himself. Yep. And I was like, whoa, that's unbelievable. But I think that's the norm for quite a few rural people, right? Well, Maybe I, grew up, I have an elder at our church. He used to talk about a one school, his one room schoolhouse where they would bring their guns to school and during recess go out and target practice and then trade guns at school. So mm-hmm. guns in school in the early 1900s was normal, right? right? Like, Well, they even in my, I, I graduated in 99, and they would bring shotguns to school because they had a rifle club and there you go. they would practice at school. 1999. Imagine that. Wow. Yeah. So wow. up until, you know, things started to change, I think, after 9-11 a lot. But, yeah, the kids sure. used to bring guns to school. They, they would shotguns sure. and they had training. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a club. Yeah. And no one was freaked out by that, which is kind of interesting. Well, what, and so back to what spurred this, like part of our job as the rural collective is to help help guys to think through the, 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 the dynamics of their local um, environment or culture. Like what are, what are the challenges to the gospel? What are the and now and now we COVID has changed the playing field dramatically. So up prior to COVID, um, people were moving, continually moving away from rural towards the urban uh, centers for jobs and affluence and everything. Mm-hmm. And now there's, there's this, it's, it's just begun, but there's this huge wave of people moving out of the urban setting settings towards rural places, uh, out of fear of the next pandemic. And because they discovered so many jobs can be done remotely. And a third wave, which I don't think has even begun to, and it may not, it's just my speculation, but I think the anti-Chinese um, manufacturing uh, mentality will bring about a resurgence of manufacturing in small towns in America where there are a lot of unemployed people that can be hired for low wages. And um, I, I just think that's so suddenly rural church planting is no longer just a um, theological truth that should be done regardless of 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 the drift of population but now has become to me strategic because people moving to the rural settings aren't coming knowing Jesus. Mm. They're coming out of fear. They're coming out of, out of all, for all sorts of reasons. And so now we have reason to say, what does it look like to welcome in these strangers who are far from Christ? And uh, again, I think this could be the, the, uh, the trend for the next five to 10 years. I don't mm. know. Um, but anyway, no, I, I'm with you. And there are some sociologists who would call, that the, the, the like purpling, you know, because it's red and then the blue starts to come and then it purples the state. Have you heard yeah. any of that? Well, our state certainly went, has gone that way. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I I'm just, I'm just not going to think about it in political terms. I'm going to think about it in just terms of the migration of people in the United States has been for the last 20, 30 years towards urban suburban places. Mm-hmm. And now I think there's, there's, there's already a shift like New Hampshire. My house value goes up almost 10 grand a month. Wow. Maybe. Okay. Maybe it's more like five grand a month because, Even so, that's crazy. because all these people are moving out of Massachusetts or New York, they want, or Connecticut, they, they want to get away from urban center settings. Uh, 
the pandemic has created. So 9-11 created a visible target, mm-hmm. but, but COVID has created an invisible um, enemy. And obviously urban centers are high, high, far more um, contagious to those scenarios. So um, I just look at it as gospel opportunity. Absolutely. And church planting um, opportunity. Yeah, I love the way that you're framing this, Dave, because the reason I brought this in is because so many people only see reality through a political lens. I think that I think politics in 2020 has become God. You know, when we abandon the true and living God, we have to put a God, a small G God in its place. And I think political, you know, affiliations and ideologies and allegiances, it's become worship. And for most people, that's their lens. It's like their worldview. You know, it's, it's what yeah. they see everything through where you're saying, no, we're, we're going to look at all of these opportunities and situations and circumstances with a gospel lens and a gospel opportunity lens to advance the kingdom of God, which I love. I love the way. And that's, and that's what we're supposed to. The, 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 the political currents are really irrelevant to the church, mm. that, that the church in the first two centuries grew under Roman rule which was no friend to the church. No, no. And, and there were localized, you know, localized persecutions for the first almost 300 years of the church. And so you, and, and the church spread. So if, if I, to me, to me, the, 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 the American Christians fixation on politics, both from the left and the right. So mm-hmm. we have evangelicals yeah. who lean both ways. Their fixation on it is, is to me a, a um, and I'm speaking as someone who grew up and has had to repent myself of my fixation on it. Sure. But I just, I would just urge brothers and sisters in Christ to say, listen, it, for the gospel's sake, it doesn't matter who wins in December. I'm in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does not matter. Jesus is sovereign. He appoints Kings. He brings them down. Right. The, the, if, if we really believe we need to be people of Daniel, you know, that we are, we are pilgrims following God in a pagan land, mm. and we need to seek to leverage our opportunities for pointing people to the one who's with us in the fire. Um, could there be the, the only hope for the United States as far as a, a bright future is a gospel awakening, and mm. that will not come through a politician. No, not at all. Yeah, power, power and the church don't mix, and historically that's just been the case. So yeah. um, I, think, I think we've fallen prey to that. I went to Liberty University, the moral majority, like yep. it was, it was, you know, part of the DNA that if we can only win the next election, blah, 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 blah. Well, yep. I mean, I, I care and I, I read stuff sure. and I will vote, but my You're not hope, apolitical. Yeah. Yeah. My hope isn't in that. And right. uh, boy, it's liberating when I able to talk to my liberal friends in New Hampshire, my atheistic agnostic liberal friends about, you know, that I am, I, I, I apologize for the churches um, being in bed, so to speak, with, with politics. It's just not right. Mm. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's sort of a... Yeah, and you have a unique perspective because you did go to Liberty. And I, I don't know if a lot of the younger generation is aware of the moral majority. And yeah, that's true. But yeah, yeah, there was a huge uh, influence there. And uh yeah, and you lived through that. And it's interesting that there's so much overlap in the two parties and their concerns. Like you yeah. said, with tr- biblical Christianity, that uh, we I should think we do, fit yeah. easily and nicely into either side. Yep. 
Yeah, no, Keller, listen to Keller stuff on that. I mean, I, you look back historically, so Francis Schaeffer, who I really admire, but he, yeah. was, he was fixated on, on political influence. And you know, his son, Frankie Schaeffer, part of his, his atheistic conclusion was he loved his dad, but he just saw how power corrupted mm-hmm. what he would consider to be quite a beautiful gospel. I don't want to put words in Frankie Schaeffer's mouth, yeah. but um, he loved his dad, saw in his dad, you know, what his dad did with Labrie and it just, so when, when Christians are unleashed to care for the poor and think creatively about serving their community and detach themselves from political concern, man, that's liberating. Mm. It's, it's different in, in, in a, in a, in a society of, um, you know, where, you know, the, the, we're citizens who get to vote and, mm-hmm. Our, our, our leaders are brought about by vote, not by, um, you know, they're not monarchies, you know, that, that, right. so we, we, we struggle with that. I, uh, it's, it's certainly not the perfect system. It's, it's a great system, but not a perfect system. And it will not last. Uh, we have an eternal King who's perfect. He's a benevolent right. dictator. And <laughs> that's right. He's a so, sovereign. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it's helpful to, to say that Dave, to, to get people to realize that like you're, you're in a very temporary situation right now. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you're going into a kingdom and you're going to be a citizen yeah. of a kingdom, yep. not a democracy, not a republic. And the best thing you can say to people, I think, in a church is, listen, love your neighbor. But most of all, love, love, love the person in the pew with you. And especially if they have a minority view on politics. So so like a healthy church in New Hampshire, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have people who are Biden supporters and we have people who are Trump supporters. They need to learn to love each other and tone down their sense of, of hope in their candidate. Like their candidate is not the hope of the world. And um, again, not that you don't, you need to be in the world. You need to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. That includes a vote. Mm-hmm. But man, when you get wrapped up in it, and I, I think we watch that's the downside of um, the information ages. We've all become uh, thinking that we're, we're omniscient, that we, we mm-hmm. can know everything because of Google and uh, because of CNN and Fox News and, and, uh, and BBC. And the reality is we weren't, that, that's not our job. That's God's job. And if he does appoint kings and presidents, then we do our job and let God, God do what he wants. Which Daniel says he clearly does. Proverbs yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. That's great. The reason I brought that up, Dave, is not, I'm not trying to trap you or anything. <laughs> I don't feel trapped. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I'm just... I, I try to look through the eyes of, of multiple people. And when some people hear rural, um, I know that they immediately think conservatives and yeah. Republicans and policies. And, and that's not what the rural collective is doing. And, and case in point, just like you mentioned Brazil and Africa, I mean, there's, there's so much going on outside of America within the rural collective that this is not like, a, you know, Acts 29's conservative branch <laughs> man you're the first guy you're the first guy that's ever made that to me like i never thought of that i mean it's just not been for two years it's not been in in my thinking well, i'm that sorry somehow, i did that to you. <laughs> no 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 but it's it's good because i mean the majority of our churches are in the united states so if you think rural is the rural collectives is about anything to do with conservative politics i'm sorry that's not we're, our job is to help promote rural church planting. That's right. And, 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 and planting rural churches means we're making disciples in the for, forgotten and obscure places that Jesus loves. Mm. And that means, you know, pastors need to be wise as serpents and, sh- you know, shrewd as, what, gentle as 
yeah, wise as serpents or shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves. Got it. And and uh, and all across the spectrum, uh, I, I don't care if it's rural or urban, we have to help people not put their hope in political movements. Amen. Uh, that, that's just a, it's a stain on the American Christian church that somehow um, that's more powerful than making disciples. Mm. So, yeah, no, it's good to be. That's a, that's a, I appreciate you bringing that to uh, mind because, and of course you're in, you're in uh, Pittsburgh, which is the home of Joan Biden for at least some, some of it. I'm in New Hampshire, first of the nation primary. So mm. politics is part of the lifeblood here. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and Pittsburgh, threw off the 2016 election because so many of the surrounding communities are surprised everybody and voted for Trump. Like, mm-hmm. why would they do that? They're mm-hmm. union steel workers, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. we have to live in those cultures, but to live in those cultures is to point people to a king, not a president. Amen. That's a good way to say it, brother. Yeah. We don't want to be apolitical and say like, I'm, we're Amish, you know, we're just, we're, we're pulling out. But at the same time, we don't want to make it everything because it's not. I mean, we, God is sovereign over politics and United States is only one country amidst many, many, many countries that God is working in. And, uh, you know, if the stats are right, the global South, it seems like there's more movement of God there than in, in Europe and the United States and Canada. Um, so we, we have quite a mission on our hands. Yes, we do. Yes, yeah. we do. It's good, man. T- tell me what's going on. It's, we still got a bit of time here. What's going on in, uh, outside of America with Rural Collective, I think uh, mission-minded people, like overseas mission is important. So what's going on with the Rural Collective overseas? Yeah, so one of the things uh, we are, um, let me point out two things. One is, so we're trying to create partners with rural church planters in non-United States settings okay. with rural churches in the United States. And the whole idea there is, there's a real health and growth and, and, and a sense of value when a small rural, or it doesn't have to be a small rural church, but a rural church in the United States intentionally, not just money, but prayer and, and visiting and resourcing and encouragement and, and, and just growing together in relationship. When, when there's a relationship built between a church in rural America with a church in, say, rural northern Italy, mm. um, so one of our one of my goals is to help create um, uh, sort of like best practices and how to match up rural churches in um, in non United States settings. Now it's the the other the other thing is we are now we are uh, because we're working with Church in Hard Places. They have a really good apprentice program, which helps a lot with so we have a ton of people approaches from africa and india and south america um and of course they're looking to us for resources which equates money Mm. well it's if if they're looking to you for money and you say well are you reformed they're going to say i'm going to be whatever you want me to be." right no doubt and i'm not trying to downplay their sincerity but but there's been such poor theological training and so well in so much so much of the world and so the the uh, apprentice program the church in hard places has built they have a they have two they have two uh, versions of it a two-year version for a guy that's probably less literate perhaps but um clearly less educated and and over the course of that two years 
They meet monthly with a, in a cohort with a cohort leader, and they're working through a book um, that uh, there's, I forget how many there are, and they, they have to write a paper. Now, this isn't a, a college paper, but they're right. trying to train these guys to think through gospel concepts and, and biblical concepts. And over that time is to create a pool of guys that come out of that. Let's just say it's 40% of the guys that come out of that who are ready for assessment and called to church plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, th- that's sort of a long ramp. We have a one-year track, which is uh, faster, obviously. And for those guys who are for- more educated, have more biblical literacy. And, um, but the whole goal there is to, is, is it's an on-ramp toward assessment, not guaranteed of assessment, but at least, so one of the things we're doing in the rural collective is trying to, well, and there are about 160 guys in the apprentice program right now. And probably 30% are already rural. Mm. Um, so that, that's become an exciting part for us because we're not trying to recreate the wheel. Uh, Church in Hard Places had focused on that among the urban poor. You mentioned Uganda. There's a number of guys. That, so it's, it's, I'm excited about helping rural guys get into that. Um, so that's, that's a, a global part. We've got um, the pandemic forced us to to think creatively. And we've been talking about doing webinars and okay. podcasts uh, that are global in reach. And so um, we ju- we've started those webinars are like the first, I want to say the first Wednesday of every month. Nice. And uh, we do that at two times of, of, of the day uh, to reach the Australian time zone and over there, as well as um, the, the time zone in Africa and England that's ahead of us. So I think it's like, Oh, is it 10 in the morning and eight in the evening Eastern standard time? So that's a webinar, which we take a, um, a guy from doesn't have to be eight to nine, but they typically, well, again, we're still new at this, but basically talking through um, let's just say elder training in a rural setting. What does mm-hmm. that look like? Sure. And so someone will do a, a 35 minute presentation and then have Q and a, um, and then the podcast I'm interviewing, we call that gospel. Nobody's interviewing. The last one was John beam on the North shore of Oahu uh, you know, in a town of 3,500. Are these public? Yeah, they, they are public. Um, because of the reorg that Acts 29 is going through, I can't say, so Acts 29 Rural Collective uh, Facebook, I think you can find the podcast there. Okay. As far as the webinars, I need to double check where they are. That's um, great. So, but they are, they're, they're recorded. Uh, and I know the podcasts are available almost to meet. Well, they're done on Facebook Live and then, uh, almost immediately. I think they get a little editing, but uh, okay. uh, almost immediately accessible on our Facebook webpage. Yeah. Excellent. Facebook page. Yeah. Yep. That's great, man. I, I, we were supposed to go to Uganda in March and COVID shut us down and we yeah. were going up there to do just, just our church. We, well, 10 of us from our church, were going to go and assess. So I was, awesome. was going to do an assessment with Acts 29 there in Kampala and, uh, and then we were going to go north to Gulu, where Pastor Jimmy is with University Community Church. And we were going to do a pastor's training with 50 or so pastors in that area, just in Gulu alone. And we weren't going to promote Acts 29 or anything. But what we were going to do is see, like, who has kind of a theological bent to them? Who do we see that they're taking what we're saying here and they're really showing interest? And then working with them and then hopefully passing them off to either church in hard places or linking them up with you guys in the rural collective. That was yeah, our hope. And in those settings, right. Yeah. I got shut down, but yeah, well, when that opens again, the goal would be to get them 
into the apprentice program, probably. Now, there are some guys that are, are theologically trained, like, like the guy, Stephen Salamo, who's, he's been waiting for assessment because he got, they got shut down because of COVID too, but he's in, you know, the rural part of Northern Kenya among the Rendeli people. Nice. And, you know, he, he and I shared the same theological professor in seminary, the guy that went from Worcester, went to Kenya. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Went to Nairobi. And so, you know, he, he's had the same, he, he's just one of these guys that doesn't need the apprentice, uh, apprentice program, but many of the guys do, they have not right. had that luxury. And so, right. and then our, our goal is then as Lord blesses is so that Eastern Africa creates its own network and they can do their own training. Right. I mean, this is, um, Stephen Whitmer wrote a book. He's, um, he's not actually on yet, but he should be, will be. He and I are on the, um, gospel coalition of new England steering committee together and, and started the small town summits here in new England. Nice. Anyway, he wrote a book. He's a, he's a PhD guy from Cambridge, brilliant guy, world pastor wrote a book called a big gospel for small places. And, mm. uh, I think it's in there, but he talks about, we need to have a hundred year plan, mm. um, which is far more realistic. Um, and if you look at the Bible sort of analogies of the kingdom, it's more agricultural, slow growth, long-term mm, planning. No and, and so, I mean, I, th- I'm excited about the long-term um, effects of all this. I, uh, should the Lord tarry, I hope he comes tonight, but if uh-huh. he doesn't, you know, should he tarry another thousand years and there's no reason he, he can't, um, may we think uh, long term about what it looks like to train up people in East Africa, in Eastern Africa, including Uganda and Kenya, yeah. Yeah. and seeing them flourish into um, a network that is as robust as what we experience here in the United States. Yeah, yeah. amen, brother. I'm with you. Yeah. I love, I love the sense that we're all on the same team here too. You know, like yeah. whether we're in East Africa or whether we're in New Hampshire or or yep. in Pittsburgh here. Yep. We're all working towards the same goal for more people to come to know Christ, yeah. be discipled, you know, sent out on mission to their family, friends, and influences. And I'm so excited that you're partnering with guys in Uganda. I mean, that's one, I, because you're, you're a model for what I hope happens throughout Acts 29, especially in the United States, is we have so many resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's true, but sad that, and, and I don't, I'm not throwing the church under the bus by any means, but we were in a lar- very, very large Acts 29 church. And their donut budget on a Sunday was larger than a rural uh, church plant with X-Men 9 in rural Australia. Mm. So, that, and, and again, not, not to say, they're not saying that buying donuts for everybody coming right. to church in this mega church is a wrong thing. But perhaps uh, we can leverage more from the resources of, of the wealthy uh, states to help plant churches in, in, in very impoverished places. I mean, India yeah. and Africa... You know, we, we want to see guys self-sustained, but frankly, there's just not a ton of industry. And so for a, for a while yet, I think uh, we have to think about what does it mean to help help underwrite church planters and uh, and then try to help them think of creative ways to become self-sustaining. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, liberating finances from the West. Stop buying your third or fourth mega flax screen TV and take that $1,000 and invest it in Uganda. For, yeah. for the sake of Jesus, please. Yeah, amen. We're we're a little church, brother. We we have we're a small church. We maybe have a hundred people total connected to the church. Yeah. And that's not even our membership, that's just connected. And we have found that we can make a huge impact in this little, you know, almost city of Gulu, Uganda, yeah. with our little bit of people and little bit of resources. Yeah. 
and, and relational love and, and encouragement and finances, we've been able to make a huge impact there. And so for a church that has a lot of resources, man, yeah. they could make a huge difference in, difference in some of these countries. And Jesus, you know, I, and I don't want to, I don't want to sound like someone bitter towards people being wealthy. I mean, I'm compared to the world. I'm super wealthy, no but doubt. Yep. you know, we, we do want people, I mean, wealth is a danger to, to gospel joy and, and missional impact. Mm. And, um, I just think, you know, woe to the man who has so much. He says, I'm going to build a second barn, right? Like, let's be, let's be honest with American wealth. And, uh, you know, even with our, our building programs, I, I just sometimes, I wish we had a building. We planted 18 years ago and still we're now in our, our sixth rented location in 18 years. And I wish we weren't putting out money. I wish we were had it. But at the end of the day, a building can be a distraction to global impact and, uh, and, and, and missional sacrifice. And again, I like a well-appointed building and mm. I like quality coffee. I'm not a coffee yeah. snob, but... Um, so you'll I, drink Dunkin' Donuts. Well, actually, yeah, I will. But I actually think McDonald's Newman coffee is better than Starbucks. So oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just, I know I'm scandalized, I'm scandalized by that, but uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a thrifty rural guy right so gotcha. for a, buck, a buck and change i can have coffee and not put out four or five bucks in fact i challenged a buddy of mine he's a rural guy planting outside of uh, the town next to uh, fort hood and uh we i was visiting him and he said let's get some coffee so there's there's a starbucks nearby so he drives in there and said dude you're losing all rural credibility by coming <laughs> to starbucks so then he takes me to the property they own which is like like it it, it is rural as can be just just to regain his creds. Nice. Um, but, That's funny, man. But I just kind of joke, you know. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Brother, I would, man, if you're ever in Pittsburgh, I would love for you to come down and even preach for us someday. And uh, yeah, yeah. I would love to do, you know, maybe in the future we could do something together in Africa, uh, link up something in the future. But yeah, I love your attitude, man. I love your, your like joyful disposition and heart. I, your generosity in even doing this interview. So thank you. Ah, well. Yeah. Where, where, can, where can our people find you online? Like you have a church website, there's church in our places. I'll link these in the description notes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, x29.com slash rural, I think will get you to the rural collective, or if you put in a search engine, that's where you can find a lot of our resources. Personally, you can find me both there. I've got uh, david.pinkney trying to spell that will be a challenge, but david.pinkney. How do you at, spell it? Yeah, P-I-N-C-K-N-E-Y. Nice. And it's David, not Dave or Davey. It's David.Pinkney at Acts29.com. And our church here in Concord, uh, you find us at uh, where ROG Church, which stands for River of Grace, ROGchurch.com. And uh, yeah, so those are places you can find me if you want to find me. Uh, don't call on Friday. Don't email them on Friday. No, man, don't, don't do that. Um, Cause I don't care about you then Jesus does. But <laughs> I don't have to, I'm, I'm off. I don't have to labor that day. Uh, I love, I love the work, but man, I need, I need mental space. So. Amen. Yeah. Dave, yep. thank you so much for doing this brother. I really appreciate it, man. I appreciate you, your ministry, the rural collective, all love, man. Appreciate hey, it. Hey, appreciate it. And may Jesus, spread the gospel through a lot of uh, the small towns of i was on the phone earlier today i close with this with a yeah. guy from clearfield pennsylvania okay 
Yeah, yeah. Rural is it Clearfield? That sounds right. Um, yeah, and you know, interested in Acts twenty nine, and so who knows what's going to happen? Dude, Pittsburgh's yeah. such a weird place in that right here we're in a, a very urban environment, but you drive even twenty minutes and right. you're in trees right. and cornfields, and I mean, it's a weird kind of yeah. city. Um, I'm sure it's like that where you are. Well, may Jesus fill those places with uh, with gospel communities that are uh, joyful about being redeemed. Amen. Uh, on mission, yeah. So God bless, man. Thanks, brother. Love All you. All right. Take care.